Section 11 of White Knights and Other Stories by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. Part 2. Apropos of the Wet Snow. Chapter 2. But the period of my dissipation would end, and I always felt very sick afterwards. It was followed by remorse. I tried to drive it away. I felt too sick. By degrees, however, I grew used to that, too. I grew used to everything, or rather I voluntarily resigned myself to enduring it. But I had a means of escape that reconciled everything, that was to find refuge in the good and the beautiful. In dreams, of course. I was a terrible dreamer. I would dream for three months on end, tucked away in my corner, and you may believe me that at those moments I had no resemblance to the gentleman who, in the perturbation of his chicken-heart, put a collar of German beaver on his greatcoat. I suddenly became a hero. I would not have admitted my six-foot lieutenant even if he had called on me. I could not even picture him before me then. What were my dreams, and how I could satisfy myself with them? It is hard to say now, but at the time I was satisfied with them. Though, indeed, even now I am to some extent satisfied with them. Dreams were particularly sweet and vivid after a spell of dissipation. They came with remorse and with tears, with curses and transports. There were moments of such positive intoxication, of such happiness, that there was not the faintest trace of irony within me, on my honor. I had faith, hope, love. I believed blindly at such times that by some miracle, by some external circumstance, all this would suddenly open out, expand, that suddenly a vista of suitable activity, beneficent, good, and above all ready-made. What sort of activity I had no idea, but the great thing was that it should be all ready for me, would rise up before me, and I should come out into the light of day, almost riding a white horse and crowned with laurel anything but the foremost place I could not conceive for myself, and for that very reason I quite contentedly occupied the lowest in reality, either to be a hero or to grovel in the mud. There was nothing between. That was my ruin, for when I was in the mud I comforted myself with the thought that at other times I was a hero, and the hero was a cloak for the mud. For an ordinary man it was shameful to defile himself, but a hero was too lofty to be utterly defiled and so he might defile himself. It is worth noting that these attacks of the good and the beautiful visited me even during the period of dissipation, and just at the times when I was touching the bottom. They came in separate spurts, as though reminding me of themselves, but did not banish the dissipation by their appearance. On the contrary, they seemed to add a zest to it by contrast, and were only sufficiently present to serve as an appetizing sauce. That sauce was made up of contradictions and sufferings, of agonizing inward analysis, and all these pangs and pinpricks gave a certain piquancy, even a significance to my dissipation, in fact, completely answered the purpose of an appetizing sauce. There was a certain depth of meaning in it, and I could hardly have resigned myself to the simple, vulgar, direct debauchery of a clerk and have endured all the filthiness of it. What could have allured me about it then, and have drawn me at night into the street? No, I had a lofty way of getting out of it all. And what loving-kindness, O oh Lord, what loving-kindness, 
I felt at times in those dreams of mine, in those flights into the good and the beautiful. Though it was fantastic love, though it was never applied to anything human in reality, yet there was so much of this love that one did not feel afterwards even the impulse to apply it in reality. That would have been superfluous. Everything, however, passed satisfactorily by a lazy and fascinating transition into the sphere of art, that is, into the beautiful forms of life, lying ready, largely stolen from the poets and novelists, and adapted to all sorts of needs and uses. I, for instance, was triumphant over every one. Every one, of course, was in dust and ashes, and was forced spontaneously to recognize my superiority. And I forgave them all. I was a poet and a grand gentleman. I fell in love. I came in for countless millions, and immediately devoted them to humanity, and at the same time I confessed before all the people my shameful deeds, which of course were not merely shameful, but had in them much that was good and beautiful. Something in the Manfred style. Everyone would kiss me and weep. What idiots they would be if they did not! while I should go barefoot and hungry preaching new ideas and fighting a victorious Austerlitz against the obscurantists. Then the band would play a march, an amnesty would be declared, the Pope would agree to retire from Rome to Brazil, then there would be a ball for the whole of Italy, at the Villa Borghese, on the shores of the Lake of Como, the Lake of Como being for that purpose transferred to the neighborhood of Rome. Then would come a scene in the bushes, and so on, and so on as though you did not know all about it. You will say that it is vulgar and contemptible to drag all this into public after all the tears and transports which I have myself confessed. But why is it contemptible? Can you imagine that I am ashamed of it all, and that it was stupider than anything in your life, gentlemen? And I can assure you that some of these fancies were by no means badly composed. It did not all happen on the shores of Lake Como. And yet you are right, it really is vulgar and contemptible, and most contemptible of all it is that now I am attempting to justify myself to you, and even more contemptible than that is my making this remark now. But that's enough, or there will be no end to it. Each step will be more contemptible than the last. I could never stand more than three months of dreaming at a time without feeling an irresistible desire to plunge into society. To plunge into society meant to visit my superior at the office. Anton Antonitch Syetachkin. He was the only permanent acquaintance I have had in my life, and wonder at the fact myself now. But I only went to see him when that phase came over me, and when my dreams had reached such a point of bliss that it became essential at once to embrace my fellows and all mankind, and for that purpose I needed at least one human being actually existing. I had to call on Anton Antonitch, however, on Tuesday, his at-home day, so I had always to time my passionate desire to embrace humanity so that it might fall on a Tuesday. This Anton Antonitch lived on the fourth story in a house in five corners, in four low-pitched rooms, one smaller than the other, of a particularly frugal and sallow appearance. He had two daughters and their aunt who used to pour out the tea. Of the daughters one was thirteen and another fourteen. They both had snub noses, and I was awfully shy of them, because they were always whispering and giggling together. The master of the house usually sat in his study on a leather couch in front of the table with some gray-headed gentleman, 
usually a colleague from our office or some other department. I never saw more than two or three visitors there, always the same. They talked about the excise duty, about business in the Senate, about salaries, about promotions, about His Excellency and the best means of pleasing him, and so on. I had the patience to sit like a fool beside these people for four hours at a stretch, listening to them without knowing what to say to them or venturing to say a word. I became stupefied. Several times I felt myself perspiring. I was overcome by a sort of paralysis. But this was pleasant and good for me. On returning home I deferred for a time my desire to embrace all mankind. I had, however, one other acquaintance of a sort, Simonov who was an old schoolfellow. I had a number of schoolfellows indeed in Petersburg, but I did not associate with them, and had even given up nodding to them in the street. I believe I had transferred into the department I was in simply to avoid their company and to cut off all connection with my hateful childhood. Curses on that school and all those terrible years of penal servitude. In short, I parted from my schoolfellows as soon as I got out into the world. There were two or three left to whom I nodded in the street. One of them was Simonov, who had been in no way distinguished at school, was of a quiet and equitable disposition, but I discovered in him a certain independence of character and even honesty. I don't even suppose that he was particularly stupid. I had at one time spent some rather soulful moments with him, but these had not lasted long and had somehow been suddenly clouded over. He was evidently uncomfortable at these reminiscences and was, I fancy, always afraid that I might take up the same tone again. I suspected that he had an aversion for me, but still I went on going to see him, not being quite certain of it. And so on one occasion, unable to endure my solitude, and knowing that, as it was Thursday, Anton Antonitch's door would be closed, I thought of Simonov. Climbing up to his fourth story, I was thinking that the man disliked me, and that it was a mistake to go and see him but as it always happened that such reflections impelled me, as though purposely, to put myself into a false position, I went in. It was almost a year since I had last seen Simonov. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 I found two of my old schoolfellows with him. They seemed to be discussing an important matter. All of them took scarcely any notice of my entrance which was strange, for I had not met them for years. Evidently they looked upon me as something on the level of a common fly. I had not been treated like that even at school, though they all hated me. I knew, of course, that they must despise me now for my lack of success in the service, and for my having let myself sink so low, going about badly dressed and so on, which seemed to them a sign of my incapacity and insignificance. But I had not expected such contempt. Semenov was positively surprised at my turning up. Even in old days he had always seemed surprised at my coming. All this disconcerted me. I sat down, feeling rather miserable, and began listening to what they were saying. They were engaged in warm and earnest conversation about a farewell dinner which they wanted to arrange for the next day to a comrade of theirs called Zverkov, an officer in the army, who was going away to a distant province. This Zverkov had been all the time at school with me, too. 
I had begun to hate him particularly in the upper forms. In the lower forms he had simply been a pretty, playful boy whom everyone liked. I had hated him, however, even in the lower forms, just because he was a pretty and playful boy. He was always bad at his lessons and got worse and worse as he went on. However, he left with a good certificate as he had powerful interest. During his last year at school he came in for an estate of two hundred serfs, and as almost all of us were poor, he took up a swaggering tone among us. He was vulgar in the extreme, but at the same time he was a good-natured fellow, even in his swaggering. In spite of superficial, fantastic, and sham notions of honor and dignity, all but very few of us positively groveled before Zverkov, and the more so, the more he swaggered. And it was not from any interested motive that they groveled, but simply because he had been favored by the gifts of nature. Moreover, it was, as it were, an accepted idea among us that Zverkov was a specialist in regard to tact and the social graces. This last fact particularly infuriated me. I hated the abrupt, self-confident tone of his voice, his admiration of his own witticisms, which were often frightfully stupid, though he was bold in his language. I hated his handsome but stupid face, for which I would, however, have gladly exchanged my intelligent one, and the free and easy military manners in fashion in the forties. I hated the way in which he used to talk of his future conquests of women. He did not venture to begin his attack upon women until he had the epaulets of an officer and was looking forward to them with impatience, and boasted of the duels he would constantly be fighting. I remember how I, invariably so taciturn, suddenly fastened upon Zverkov, when one day talking, at a leisure moment, with his schoolfellows of his future relations with the fair sex, and growing as sportive as a puppy in the sun, he all at once declared that he would not leave a single village girl on his estate unnoticed, that that was his droit de seigneur, and that if the peasants dared to protest he would have them all flogged, and double the tax on them, the bearded rascals. Our servile rabble applauded, but I attacked him, not from compassion for the girls and their fathers, but simply because they were applauding such an insect. I got the better of him on that occasion. But though Zverkov was stupid, he was lively and impudent, and so laughed it off, and in such a way that my victory was not really complete. The laugh was on his side. He got the better of me on several occasions afterwards, but without malice, jestingly, casually. I remained angrily and contemptuously silent and would not answer him. When we left school he made advances to me. I did not rebuff them, for I was flattered, but we soon parted and quite naturally. Afterwards I heard of his barrack-room success as a lieutenant, and of the fast life he was leading. Then there came other rumors of his successes in the service. By then he had taken to cutting me in the street and I suspected that he was afraid of compromising himself by greeting a personage as insignificant as me. I saw him once in the theatre, in the third tier of boxes. By then he was wearing shoulder-straps. He was twisting and twirling about, ingratiating himself with the daughters of an ancient general. In three years he had gone off considerably, though he was still rather handsome and adroit. One could see that by the time he was thirty he would be corpulent. So it was to this Zverkov that my schoolfellows were going to give a dinner on his departure. They had kept up with him for those three years, though privately they did not consider themselves on an equal footing with him, I am convinced of that. Of Simonov's two visitors one was 
Ferfitchkin, a Russianized German, a little fellow with the face of a monkey, a blockhead, who was always deriding every one, a very bitter enemy of mine from our days in the lower forms. A vulgar, impudent, swaggering fellow, who affected a most sensitive feeling of personal honor, though of course he was a wretched little coward at heart. He was one of those worshippers of Zverkov who made up to the latter from interested motives, and often borrowed money from him. Simonov's other visitor, Trudalyubov, was a person in no way remarkable. A tall young fellow, in the army, with a cold face, fairly honest, though he worshipped success of every sort, and was only capable of thinking of promotion. He was some sort of distant relation of Zverkov's, and this, foolish as it seems, gave him a certain importance among us. He always thought me of no consequence whatever. His behaviour to me, though not quite courteous, was tolerable. "'Well, with seven roubles each,' said Trudalyubov, twenty-one roubles between the three of us, we ought to be able to get a good dinner. Zverkov, of course, won't pay.' "'Of course not, since we are inviting him,' Simonov decided. Can you imagine, Ferfitchkin interrupted hotly and conceitedly, like some insolent flunky boasting of his master, the general's decorations, can you imagine that Zverkov will let us pay alone? He will accept from delicacy, but he will order half a dozen bottles of champagne. Do we want half a dozen for the four of us? observed Trudyubov, taking notice only of the half-dozen. So the three of us, with Zverkov for the fourth, twenty-one roubles, at the Hôtel de Paris, at five o'clock to-morrow," Simonov, who had been asked to make the arrangements, concluded, finally. "'How twenty-one roubles?' I asked, in some agitation, with a show of being offended. "'If you count me, it will not be twenty-one, but twenty-eight roubles.' It seemed to me that to invite myself so suddenly and unexpectedly would be positively graceful, and that they would all be conquered at once and would look at me with respect. "'Do you want to join, too?' Simonov observed, with no appearance of pleasure, seeming to avoid looking at me. He knew me through and through. It infuriated me that he knew me so thoroughly. "'Why not? I am an old schoolfellow of his, too, I believe. And I must own I feel hurt that you have left me out,' I said, boiling over again. "'And where were we to find you?' Ferfitchkin put in roughly. "'You never were on good terms with Zverkov,' Trudalyubov added, frowning but I had already clutched at the idea and would not give it up. It seems to me that no one has a right to form an opinion upon that," I retorted in a shaking voice, as though something tremendous had happened. Perhaps that is just my reason for wishing it now, that I have not always been on good terms with him. Oh, there's no making you out with these refinements," Trudalyubov jeered. We'll put your name down," Simonov decided, addressing me, tomorrow at five o'clock at the Hôtel de Paris. What about the money? Ferfitchkin began in an undertone, indicating me to Simonov, but he broke off, for even Simonov was embarrassed. "'That will do,' said Trudyubov, getting up. "'If he wants to come so much, let him.' "'But it's a private thing, between us friends,' Ferfitchkin said, crossly, as he too picked up his hat. "'It's not an official gathering.' "'We do not want at all, perhaps—' They went away. Ferfitchkin did not greet me in any way as he went out. Trudalyubov barely nodded. Simonov, with whom I was left tête-à-tête, -tête, was in a state of vexation and perplexity, and looked at me queerly. He did not sit down, and did not ask me to. "'Hm! Yes,' 
"'Tomorrow, then. Will you pay your subscription now?' "'I just ask so as to know,' he muttered, in embarrassment. I flushed crimson, and as I did so I remembered that I had owed Simonov fifteen roubles for ages, which I had, indeed, never forgotten, though I had not paid it. "'You will understand, Simonov, that I could have no idea when I came here. I am very much vexed that I have forgotten—all right, all right, that doesn't matter. You can pay to-morrow after the dinner. I simply wanted to know—please don't—' He broke off and began pacing the room, still more vexed. As he walked, he began to stamp with his heels. "'Am I keeping you?' I asked, after two minutes of silence. "'Oh,' he said, starting, "'that is, to be truthful, yes. I have to go and see someone. Not far from here,' he added, in an apologetic voice, somewhat abashed. "'My goodness! Why didn't you say so?' I cried, seizing my cap with an astonishingly free-and-easy air, which was the last thing I should have expected of myself. "'It's close by, not two paces away,' Simonov repeated, accompanying me to the front door with a fussy air which did not suit him at all. "'So five o'clock punctually to-morrow,' he called down the stairs after me. He was very glad to get rid of me. I was in a fury. What possessed me? What possessed me to force myself upon them, I wondered, grinding my teeth, as I strode along the street, for a scoundrel, a pig like that Zverkov. Of course, I had better not go. Of course, I must just snap my fingers at them. I am not bound in any way. I'll send Simonov a note by to-morrow's post. But what made me furious was that I knew for certain that I should go, that I should make a point of going and the more tactless, the more unseemly my going would be, the more certainly I would go. And there was a positive obstacle to my going. I had no money. All I had was nine roubles. I had to give seven of that to my servant, Apollon, for his monthly wages. That was all I paid him. He had to keep himself. Not to pay him was impossible, considering his character, but I will talk about that fellow, about that plague of mine, another time. However, I knew I should go, and should not pay him his wages. That night I had the most hideous dreams. No wonder. All the evening I had been oppressed by memories of my miserable days at school, and I could not shake them off. I was sent to the school by distant relations, upon whom I was dependent, and of whom I have heard nothing since. They sent me there a forlorn, silent boy already crushed by their reproaches, already troubled by doubt, and looking with savage distrust at every one. My schoolfellows met me with spiteful and merciless jibes because I was not like any of them. But I could not endure their taunts. I could not give in to them with the ignoble readiness with which they gave in to one another. I hated them from the first, and shut myself away from every one in timid, wounded, and disproportionate pride. Their coarseness revolted me. They laughed cynically at my face, at my clumsy figure, and yet what stupid faces they had themselves! In our school the boys' faces seemed in a special way to degenerate and grow stupider. How many fine-looking boys came to us! In a few years they became repulsive. Even at sixteen I wondered at them morosely. Even then I was struck by the pettiness of their thoughts, the stupidity of their pursuits, their games, their conversations. They had no understanding of such essential things, they took no interest in such striking, impressive subjects, that I could not help considering them inferior to myself. 
It was not wounded vanity that drove me to it. And for God's sake do not thrust upon me your hackneyed remarks, repeated to nausea, that I was only a dreamer, while they even then had an understanding of life. They understood nothing, they had no idea of real life, and I swear that that was what made me most indignant with them. On the contrary, the most obvious striking reality they accepted with fantastic stupidity, and even at that time were accustomed to respect success. Everything that was just, but oppressed and looked down upon, they laughed at heartlessly and shamefully. They took rank for intelligence. Even at sixteen they were already talking about a snug berth. Of course, a great deal of it was due to their stupidity, to the bad examples with which they had always been surrounded in their childhood and boyhood. They were monstrously depraved. Of course, a great deal of that, too, was superficial and an assumption of cynicism. Of course there were glimpses of youth and freshness, even in their depravity. But even that freshness was not attractive, and showed itself in a certain rakishness. I hated them horribly, though perhaps I was worse than any of them. They repaid me in the same way, and did not conceal their aversion for me. But by then I did not desire their affection. On the contrary, I continually longed for their humiliation. To escape from their derision I purposely began to make all the progress I could with my studies, and forced my way to the very top. This impressed them. Moreover, they all began by degrees to grasp that I had already read books none of them could read, and understood things not forming part of our school curriculum, of which they had not even heard. They took a savage and sarcastic view of it, but were morally impressed, especially as the teachers began to notice me on those grounds. The mockery ceased, but the hostility remained, and cold and strained relations became permanent between us. In the end I could not put up with it. With years a craving for society, for friends, developed in me. I attempted to get on friendly terms with some of my schoolfellows, but somehow or other my intimacy with them was always strained and soon ended of itself. Once, indeed, I did have a friend, but I was already a tyrant at heart. I wanted to exercise unbounded sway over him. I tried to instill into him a contempt for his surroundings. I required of him a disdainful and complete break with those surroundings. I frightened him with my passionate affection. I reduced him to tears, to hysterics. He was a simple and devoted soul, but when he devoted himself to me entirely I began to hate him immediately and repulsed him, as though all I needed him for was to win a victory over him, to subjugate him and nothing else. But I could not subjugate all of them. My friend was not at all like them, either. He was, in fact, a rare exception. The first thing I did on leaving school was to give up the special job for which I had been destined, so as to break all ties, to curse my past, and shake the dust from off my feet. And goodness knows why, after all that, I should go trudging off to Simonoff's. Early next morning I roused myself and jumped out of bed with excitement, as though it were all about to happen at once. But I believed that some radical change in my life was coming, and would inevitably come that day. Owing to its rarity, perhaps, any external event, however trivial, always made me feel as though some radical change in my life were at hand. I went to the office, however, as usual, but sneaked away home two hours earlier to get ready. The great thing, I thought, is not to be the first to arrive, or they will think I am overjoyed at coming but there were thousands of such great points to consider, 
and they all agitated and overwhelmed me. I polished my boots a second time with my own hands. Nothing in the world would have induced Apollon to clean them twice a day, as he considered that it was more than his duties required of him. I stole the brushes to clean them from the passage, being careful he should not detect it, for fear of his contempt. Then I minutely examined my clothes, and thought that everything looked old, worn, and threadbare. I had let myself get too slovenly. My uniform, perhaps, was tidy, but I could not go out to dinner in my uniform. The worst of it was that on the knee of my trousers was a big yellow stain. I had a foreboding that that stain would deprive me of nine-tenths of my personal dignity. I knew, too, that it was very poor to think so. But this is no time for thinking. Now I am in for the real thing, I thought, and my heart sank. I knew, too, perfectly well, even then, that I was monstrously exaggerating the facts. But how could I help it? I could not control myself, and was already shaking with fever. With despair I pictured to myself how coldly and disdainfully that scoundrel Zverkov would meet me, with what dull-witted invincible contempt the blockhead Trudyubov would look at me, with what impudent rudeness the insect Ferfitchkin would snigger at me in order to curry favour with Zverkov, how completely Simonov would take it all in and how he would despise me for the abjectness of my vanity and lack of spirit. And worst of all, how paltry, unliterary, commonplace it would all be. Of course, the best thing would be not to go at all. But that was most impossible of all. If I feel impelled to do anything, I seem to be pitchforked into it. I should have jeered at myself ever afterwards. So you funked it, you funked it, you funked the real thing. On the contrary, I passionately longed to show all that rabble that I was by no means such a spiritless creature as I seemed to myself. What is more, even in the acutest paroxysm of this cowardly fever, I dreamed of getting the upper hand, of dominating them, carrying them away, making them like me, if only for my elevation of thought and unmistakable wit. They would abandon Zverkov. He would sit on one side, silent and ashamed, while I should crush him. Then, perhaps, we would be reconciled, and drink to our everlasting friendship. But what was most bitter and most humiliating for me was that I knew even then, knew fully and for certain, that I needed nothing of all this really, that I did not really want to crush, to subdue, to attract them, and that I did not care a straw really for the result even if I did achieve it. Oh, how I prayed for the day to pass quickly! In unutterable anguish I went to the window, opened the movable pane, and looked out into the troubled darkness of the thickly falling wet snow. At last my wretched little clock hissed out five. I seized my hat, and trying not to look at Apollon, who had been all day expecting his month's wages, but in his foolishness was unwilling to be the first to speak about it. I slipped between him and the door, and jumping into a high-class sledge, on which I spent my last half-rouble, I drove up in grand style to the Hôtel de Paris. End of chapter 3 Recording by Bill Borst